cliffcentral.com. All right, it is time for the burning platform. It is Thursday morning on cliffcentral.com. It's already the 8th of December. We're winding down towards the end of the year. But it seems like um, ESCOM keeps trying to wind us up. I've got Pumi Mashiko here with us, as ever. We've got Kanth and Pele in the studio this morning, both of them ready to uh, tell us what they think of what's going on in the news this week. But we also have, and I'm very delighted to welcome her back to the show, someone I haven't seen for a little while now. Magda, it's very, very nice to see you again. How are you? I'm good. Very well. Um, suffering the same load shedding as everyone else's. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, that just become the it's way the of norm. life for us. It's the norm. So for those who don't know. Can we say new normal again? Is that okay? <laughs> <laughs> you, can say, you can say new anything, but just don't say new dawn. We'll talk about that next. Uh, <laughs> let me just remind everyone quickly that Magda Vieska is a Polish-born South African who has worked uh, all the way to the top in, in a, a very successful and impressive way. You know, I was, I was thinking about your story the other day again, Magda, and how you came out of communist Poland, how your family had to flee to Austria, and how your life when you got to South Africa was, was anything but wonderful. And, you know, your, your parents worked really, really hard. They were in the state medical uh, service for a while, too. And, and you, you know, you went through what can only be described as like a real kind of traumatic relocation in this place. And you've, you've not only made it your home and made a huge difference to society, but you've built this incredible business as well. And, uh, and you know, with Signia, which is your, is your financial services company, uh, you, you really could have just sat down and thought, well, I'm a successful person like so many people in business have and just quietly gone about your business. But you instead decided also to open your mouth to say things when you thought things were uh, being done in, in, a, in a less than savory way. You've made a lot of comments in media about corruption. You've spoken out against powerful people. And uh, you could have just, you know, n not done any of that and been happy. And uh, no one would have known that you had all these points of view. You know, people often say, well, keep your head down. Don't do and say anything. Um, <laughs> do you think you've made the right decision? Because now you kind of, you know, got yourself into a position where people go, what does Magda think? <laughs> Gareth, I would never have done it in any other way. So I think, you know, one of the, as background, um, obviously this whole story of refugee and mm. obviously having a bit of a tough time when I arrived in South Africa, I think you have to see it and go back a little bit backwards and realize that I grew up in a communist Poland. And, you know, the relevance of that mm. is, and it wasn't a, you know, sustainable system, but the relevance of it is that when I grew up, you know, in, under communism, everyone had a job, everyone, whether they had work, that's a different thing, but everyone had a job. There was mm -hmm. no unemployment. Yet everyone um, had free access to superb education, superb health. Um, so, I, and, and everyone was equal. You know, there was no such, except for our communist party members, but you know, they don't really enter into my sphere. And, you know, I grew up into, in a, almost like a utopic, uh, society, which is completely financially unsustainable and it all collapsed, as we all know. But then, you know, coming to South Africa, I've always viewed it as, you know, we arrived at and, and forget the childhood. But, you know, once I started uh, working, you know, I've always viewed South Africa as a country that adopted us. Mm. You know, there was no discrimination. If I had gone to anywhere in Europe or Australia or anywhere else, mm -hmm. you know, we would always be these Polish immigrants. We were kind of second class citizens. In South Africa, South Africa embraced us 
effectively, and my family lives here to this day. And so I always had this strong feeling that I need to give back. You know, it's not enough just to take. Uh, you do need to give back. And, you know, I also believe in the fact that to be successful, it's not just about hard work. You know, there are lots of people who work really, really hard, just people mm. on this call are working really, really hard. So, you know, to be successful, you truly have to have a healthy dose of luck. And, you know, that is what happened yep. to me. So, you know, building up companies, healthy dose of luck, being in the right place at the right time. Um, and consequently, I don't think it was enough to just sit back and accept what came to me and, you know, celebrate what happened. You know, I, I really do have a very strong feel of kind of moral justice mm. um, and the fact that I truly want to give back. Well, we could talk about all of that because there's plenty of stuff that we need to discuss, which is, you know, obviously relevant to the news today. But I do think that it's also worth giving you a chance to talk about something where there are a couple of people in the comments here who say, yeah, Magda, she was very pro-vaccinations, pro-mandates. Uh, she was mocking people who didn't uh, do all of that at the beginning of COVID. Like, have, have you, have you, after, you know, a little bit of kind of reflection, changed your position on any of that stuff? Or do you think that that's a bad representation of what your position was? No. So my position at the beginning, and, and it remains such, look, look, my parents are medical doctors. And, you know, I grew up surrounded by medicine and surrounded by what medicine can do. So, you know, in the instance of when COVID appeared, to me, it was an absolutely you know, natural thing to look for a physical cure or at least, you know, halt to what was happening. And, you know, again, I started a little bit of background. I started a venture capital firm in the UK in the last three years, just before COVID, actually. One of our investments, because we, we do concentrate on life sciences, mm. one of our investments was Vasitech. Now, Vasitech spun out of Oxford University and owned the IP to AstraZeneca, what we know as AstraZeneca vaccine. Mm. So again, I was closer potentially to vaccines and what they can achieve than most people. So on one thing, I have absolutely on vaccines, I have not changed my mind. And I know that, you know, people have the right. So one thing I haven't changed my mind on, people have an absolute right to decide what they want. And just as I have a right to believe in vaccines, other people have the right not to. Mm -hmm. The thing that I haven't changed my mind on, and I think, you know, history will not be kind uh, to current politicians worldwide. What I did not change my mind on is the way the politicians really approached this. So I have mm -hmm. not changed my mind on the lockdowns and the destruction, mm -hmm. sheer destruction, both economically and otherwise, that lockdowns caused. So, you know, right at the beginning, right at the beginning, we knew who the vulnerable people are. You know, this didn't come as a surprise one year into the pandemic. We knew it's, you know, the elderly. We knew it's people with comorbidities. I mean, that's probably the most difficult one because that's been all ages. But we knew who, who should isolate. Meanwhile, I could not believe that global population, like sheep, allowed themselves to be locked down under the control of government. So you yep. basically ceded your rights yeah. to government to lock you up in your houses. Mm -hmm. That was the absurdity of it. And, you know, the, the obvious consequences was the sheer destruction of global economy. 
and we are take the Ukraine war aside. We are living through that right now. Absolutely. And, you know, there is no side, no end in sight. Yeah, I'm afraid that's uh, that's something that I think it's very, very difficult for people now to defend. And, uh, you know, I see uh, politicians trying to backtrack, trying to show, no, no, we weren't so in favor of this or so in favor of that. We didn't shut down schools. I didn't have this vaccine mandate or this mask mandate. And we didn't tell people to shut their businesses down. You see people backtracking in, in politics now because obviously elections are coming up. And in some parts of the world, they've already come up. And the people who were very pro lockdowns are now very, very unpopular at the polls. Anyway, we've got that behind us. There's lots to talk about at the moment. We, we started with uh, load shedding because it's our reality. It's what we're dealing with. So let's get into this. Um, do you believe, because I know Canton and Pumi's point of view on this, do you believe there's a solution to this ESCOM situation? No. Well, let me qualify it. There is no short-term solution to the ESCOM situation. They cannot be um, for you know a variety of reasons, and they've been written about in the media. And I really don't want to you know repeat what people know: lack of maintenance, falling over infrastructure, corruption within the various ESCOM plants. No, okay, is the answer. Uh, it's just too much to fix after too many years of lack of attention to this infrastructure. I think in the longer term, and not even in the medium term, but in the longer term one needs to look at this transition to renewable energy. And it will take a while because, you know, we are completely dependent on coal and let's not talk about diesel being burnt. So there needs to come a time when renewable energy kicks in. Now, these are massive projects and there's also a lot of innovation in this field. You know, I just, again, venture capital, business, UK, we tend to, you know, encounter a lot of innovation in the field of renewable energy. Sure. And then one of the things that I recently saw was a company which has, and you know, question mark how, you know, how long it will take to become viable, but commercially viable. But what I saw is, you know, you've got these windmill farms with mm. these ginormous windmills, uh, which rely on creation of energy via windmills, mm -hmm. via wind. Now, a company I saw which has developed, I mean, it almost sounds ridiculous except it isn't, has developed something, if you could imagine metal poles, yeah. almost like a fence. Yes. And literally there's a circle made out of metal poles, nothing more. And then they have almost like metal flaps attached to each one of these poles. Now mm -hmm. these poles are about three meters in height. Um, very cheap infrastructure. And they are generating energy via something which takes very little space, is very... Uh, cheap, provided, you know, the metal stalls don't, don't get stolen in South Africa. Um, <laughs> you know, you've got these metal poles, you've got these flaps, and they're turning. Mm. Uh, so there's a lot of innovation in renewable space and cheap innovation. So, you know, and, and again, I, I can't believe that solar energy isn't being used for obvious reasons in South Africa. The government is relaxing regulation, as we know, around it. Yeah. And to be perfectly honest, that's the long-term answer. Now, in the medium term, if you don't have an inverter, if you don't have a generator, get one. Right. Uh, because nothing's changing soon. Yeah, I'm afraid that's the that's the reality that we all have to deal with. And Canton was calling this out years ago already, saying you can't rely on government. In fact, Canton, we got a comment from someone a bit earlier on saying they listened to you. They've now made they've taken themselves off the grid in terms of electricity. They also have 
their own borehole, so they're off the grid for water, and they said we've got to give you credit this morning. So I'm giving you credit right that's now. That's absolutely brilliant because water is going to be the next major crisis, and yeah. that's going to hit us. Wow, you know, we don't have a clue yet, Gareth, in terms of how bad the water situation is uh, is actually going to be. Martha, the problem that I've got right now, look, I'm very bullish in terms of solar. And as Gareth said, I, I went off grid two years ago in terms of the, the solar setup. It was a lot more expensive back then to, uh, to do it. But now when we're sitting with these four and a half hour shutdowns at a time and I'm cruising through it, I'm, I'm feeling really good about it. But the problem that we've got is being able to maintain the base load in terms of all of the industries that we've got to support. We're never going to be able to do that kind of stuff with solar and we're never going to be able to do that type of stuff with wind. So that basically leaves only two alternatives that we end up working with. Either we're going to go with burning fossil fuels, which is either going to be gas, preferably, because gas is the least polluting of them, or coal, which we have an abundant supply of, or to end up going nuclear. And <clears throat> nuclear right now absolutely makes the most sense for us in terms of what we should be doing to fixing things in the short term. Right now, the only people who can turn around nuclear at short notice are the Russians and the Chinese. And, of course, every time we try to anyway go near that discussion, people immediately start raising red flags uh, around this. Uh, Gareth, we spoke about the pebble bed modular re reactor technology, which was developed by us here in this country, mm -hmm. which was then taken out uh, and, and sold off to the Chinese, and they've now been developing it and, and turning that stuff around. But the fact that, you know, we, we come back to is that you can't run a furnace on solar. You can't run a furnace on wind energy. Yeah. We need that kind of stuff in order to be able to do things like, like produce steel, which, yeah. um, yeah, you, you can't drive uh, a steel plant by making use of, uh, of solar and wind. So, but remember the other point as well, that one of the reasons why we have load shedding is that we are actually delivering electricity to people who are not paying for the electricity. So that's yeah. the first point. And then the second point is that when we are burning diesel in order to provide electricity, because NERSA won't allow ESCOM to actually charge electricity at the cost of diesel, ESCOM's got no incentive to actually go out and buy diesel because, you know, you you ending up generating electricity at a random um, uh, a kilowatt, but people are paying 50 cents a kilowatt, it's not going to make sense. So allowing NERSA to drive up prices is actually a good thing to do. And again, politicians are not going to do this. The solution to high prices is high prices. We should be doing this. But try telling anyone ESCOM should actually be charging more right now so that the mission-critical industries can actually keep going. Nobody's going to buy it. Speaking of mission-critical industries, while we talk about trying to fire up an economy with renewables, which we can't do, we wake up to the news, Sky News reporting, that in the UK they've approved a colliery. You know, so we wake up to the news that they are going back. They've opened their <laughs> first deep coal mine in 40 years. In, yes. Exactly. Yeah. So, and, and yet here we sit speaking about things, you know, we're, we're trying to solve first world problems in a third world country yeah. that, that really don't uh, in any way serve us. The problems that we do have to look at and worry about and try and solve 
we're not even looking at. We're talking about just transitions. But you see, Magda is, is correct in the sense that we don't have a shortage of coal right now for our current coal-fired power stations. <laughs> mm-hmm. We can't be building new coal power stations because that doesn't make any sense. But we also have the problem that we can't deliver coal from our coal mines to our existing power stations. Yeah. And again, that's because we've allowed the railways to completely degenerate. And so now we've got all of these trucks that actually line up and the coal gets stolen en route. And my word, it's a disaster. <laughs> well, let me ask... By any other name. Let me, but maybe, Magda, is there anything you want to comment on there that Canton or Pumi just said? Yes, I do. And that is that between the two of you, you have touched on so many issues that are pertinent to this, you know, stable energy deliveries. I don't even know where to start Mm. unpacking everything that you have said, because all of it is true. Absolutely all of it is true. You know, the issue of nuclear, the only problem with nuclear is it takes years to build a nuclear power station. And we've seen it. And again, not helpful when parts are being stolen or we are being taken advantage of by international multinationals, which I've also been, you know, very vocal about. Uh, multinationals coming into emerging economies and, you know, milking the system for all it's worth. Um, the issue of coal corruption within, you know, power stations. How do you address that? I mean, you know, I've got some ideas, but none of them, um, would be necessarily regarded as palatable. Please tell us, though. (laughs) Well, you know, I have a great reliance. Okay, you're not going to find this palatable. And, uh, well, I I guess I'm voicing it in the public arena. But at the end of the day, you need to protect power stations. Now, to protect Mm -hmm. those power stations, you need to find people who are incentivized enough to protect those power stations. Now, as we know, it's not going to be a police force. No. Um, but you have unions. You have unions which represent people who are employed by these power stations. And, you know, I've always been involved, just, just a sidetrack, I've always believed in the power of a community to protect their own. Take it into a power station and incentivize people, this is the unpalatable bit, incentivize union leaders to protect those power stations. Now, when I say incentivized, I don't think anyone is confused about what I'm talking about, but incentivize them with whatever it takes, you know, however money, much money it takes to protect their own. And through that protection, you're protecting jobs, you're protecting at least more stable electricity supply. So make other stakeholders mm-hmm. responsible for eliminating corruption. Um, you know, the renewable energy, absolutely. You know, it's a long-term solution. This is not, that's why I said right up front, it is not going to be a medium-term uh, answer to what we have a problem to. Now, issue of water, that worries me more than anything else because, you know, just as we have allowed the um, energy production, what if, uh, what, sorry, um, infrastructure to fail. We have done exactly the same with water. Now, you know, one can make provisions around, you know, solar powers and going off the grid, the inverters, you know, you, you can find the roundabouts and most people have and, but you can't find easy um, Some people have. Solution. I don't know if most people have. We live in a country where most people live on less than 20 rand a day. They have not Absolutely. found ways around that power. No. 
Absolutely. You know, I live in an apartment. I don't have a borehole. There isn't a borehole coming. Um, then, you know, I go back to when Cape Town was potentially going to run out of water. And again, I went to these meetings run by Cape Town uh, municipality to explain how they're going to deliver or not deliver 25 liters of water to every uh, inhabitant of, 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 you know, of Cape Town. And it was absurd. Have you ever tried to lift 25 kilometers of water, sorry, liters of water in a plastic bottle? No. Never mind how you supply it to the elderly, the disabled. The, um, and then, you know, the issue of nurse electricity prices. Look at our economy, look at the unemployment levels, look at the average income of an average South African, not us, not people privileged sitting here giving interviews over the radio. Look at the people in townships, look at people in rural areas. They have no solution. So when the NERSA increases prices and effectively taxes the same small tax base that they already are taxing, you know, almost makes no difference. Because those communities living in townships can't afford water as is and or electricity and will not be able to afford it going forward. That is the biggest problem. Forget the electricity. And obviously there's the issue of, you know, we need to provide a stable electricity supply to businesses, particularly international investors. Otherwise, no one is investing in South Africa, which, you know, forget the stock markets. That's hot money but is not investing infrastructure in South Africa because they can't rely on a reliable electricity supply. They cannot rely on um, stable water supply. So, you know, we can live without electricity. We are. Um, you know, forget the industrial sector for obvious reasons. But water, can you imagine living without water? Um, you know, I think that's that is when we say waves of immigration from South Africa. And, you know, I look at friends of mine. And incidentally, I've got a lot of friends who incidentally are not white. And they emigrating. They are sending their kids, mm -hmm. you know, overseas. So there's this like perception that people who are emigrating are by definition white. Yeah. Well, surprise, right. actually not. <clears throat> Everyone is emigrating. Yeah. So, so, you know, these are the problems facing this country with no easy solutions, particularly under the government that we have currently. Well, let's talk about that government now, because this, this allows us to really have a go. And I, I don't want to do what we always do. And we talk about the leaders and their personalities and the cult of personality. And, you know, South Africa is looking for a strong man. And this is something we get into a lot of the time. We've got this guy at the top, though. And, Cantham, when you came on last week, you'd read that report um, that, you know, now they were going to have to, to investigate this, uh, pala pala thing. They were going, they'd found him in, in breach of a few of his constitutional duties as president. Uh, the ANC has since then came, come out and Paul Mashatile said, uh, Gareth, no, I, I must actually contradict that. Uh, they said that there was a, there was prima facie evidence that he had contributed. They didn't say, uh, that he had maybe, contributed. Maybe, maybe. Yeah, well, exactly. Well, since yeah, then, so so there was a loophole. Yeah. Fair enough. And since then, Paul Mashatile has said, uh, "No, we've decided <laughs> that as a party, the ANC will not vote to see the president impeached or to see uh, the, the 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 report." Yeah, implemented. again, Pumi and I made exactly Surprise. that call. <laughs> yes, I, 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 yeah. but but also he's Look, been he's been com he's com been completely silent during this time. Uh, he's kind of working behind the scenes, for all we know, and and. That's what they tell us he's doing. 
but not a peep out of him through all of this, standing up for himself, saying, hey, this is nonsense, or saying, you know, here's what actually happened. We, we're still waiting for just something from the man at the top. I mean, what kind of uh, leadership we're not, is We're there? not going to get anything from the man at the top because remember right now we have a ruling party whose sole responsibility is to themselves and to actually ensure that they continue to remain in power in 2024. And I think that if you look at Mashatila uh, particularly, and it's that fascinating story about the fact that he wrote to the Saudis and said, thank you for the $1 million that you sent us. And the Saudis said, you're welcome, but it was actually $5 million. So <laughs> now we know something about where that $4 million ended up in. Wow. But Mashatila, as, as you know, I said last week, before he can do anything, he needs to get into the role of being number two, which mm -hmm. can only happen at the point at which the ANC actually puts him in as number two. And at that point, when he's number two, they then recall Didi Mabuza. He then becomes deputy president. And that's the time at which he's able to move against Ramaphosa. <laughs> but he's not going to do anything until then, because if they take out Ramaphosa now, his path through to the deputy presidency is not going to be there. So, meanwhile, the rest of us in the country are being held hostage yeah. while these guys are, are basically, you know, scrambling to ensure that their structures continue to uh, to hold together because otherwise they can't continue to loot. On I the bright that's... side, on the bright side, what we do know is that all the numbers are showing that the ANC is not going to get 50% in the next election. But then, of course, the question is whether the opposition is actually going to get their act together and give a credible alternative that will actually get people to go to the polls and vote for someone else. It's, yeah, it's uh, the next couple of years oh. are going to be crazy at that level, but nothing's going to happen that's going to fix the scenario in terms of the corruption. Pumi? Fascinating to watch, though, over the past two, two weeks now, is how... Everybody, all the, the, the different pieces of media players have moved into a defense mode around, except for one. Except for one. We must give it to Iqbal. He's standing, we must give it to Iqbal. Must give it to Iqbal. He's uh -huh. standing steadfast. Yeah. <laughs> no matter how out there the story is, he is spinning is becoming. But quite fascinating to watch is how almost all the media houses have moved into a, a protective defense mode around what's happening with Cyril, around what's happening within the ANC, and kind of giving every leeway and every moment out of it. And I think that the conversation that South Africans should also then be having, as we keep seeing various people, I mean, from when the report came out, Cyril can't resign. Cyril, you know, must be given a chance. Cyril... What does that mean? What does that mean for this party? Does it mean that if they can see no other person moving into the position of president of the ANC and therefore at this moment becoming the president of the country, does this mean that we are stuck with Cyril indefinitely? Are we going to start talking about a third term for Cyril, a fourth term for Cyril? Because, hey. Well, he might have a fourth term as president of the ANC, but not as president of the country, because we have those term limits that are 
that are actually in place. I know, and 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 I think that the the fact that we're so stuck in this kind of quagmire that says there's no one but Cyril. There's no one but Cyril that can save yeah, the day. I, I mean, there's still there still are those Cyril absolutists, those apologists even for him. And and uh, I know what your position on all of this is, Magda. I mean, business has been, you know, also quite craven in this country in in kind of propping up the ANC until the very last minute, and then going, oh well, no, no. You know, it's sort of like those lockdown discussions we were having just now. Oh, no, no, we never really supported these guys. Meanwhile, business has been their lifeblood in some ways. They've, they've, they've been the ones who've been supplying the ANC with money over the last few years. You know this, too. You've said things about this before. Um, again, you guys touched on so many points. <laughs> but let me take a bit of a – you know, I'm a pragmatist. Um, so let me take a bit of a big-picture view here. Mm-hmm. And that is, and I'm not going to talk about South Africa or even Africa, because this is a global problem. Show me a country which is free of corruption when it comes to politics. So when I look at politics, I mean, look at UK, for goodness sake, look at Germany and all of the, you know, kind of private sector corruption. Look at US, which so kindly supplied us with McKinsey and has done nothing to, to, you know, the the corruption that has wreaked the country. So, you know, I've got a picture of you of saying, I can't think of a country where they look at India, look at China, Mm. where there isn't corruption at the highest levels and private sector as well. So it's something that's endemic to the world rather than, you know, endemic to South Africa. Um, when we look at that, you know, the, the only conclusion that you can draw again about political parties is that there is almost no black and white, the right and the wrong. We operate in the shades of gray. And in the shades of gray, it's almost select the lesser evil rather than select the best that's good. Now, so, so that's just like a, my p- big picture view of this. Of course, that doesn't excuse anything that's happening. It is just a pragmatic reality, mm-hmm. which we are not going to solve in our lifetime. Okay, so that's one. Now, you know, if you look at South Africa specifically and the ANC, I mean, we, again, I'm not going to repeat, you know, what has happened to ANC and the fact that, you know, let's talk about Serafina too back in 1990s <laughs> as almost the bookend of, you know, where we then progressed. You know, there are a few comments on ANC. One is, you know, okay, so so we all know ANC is going to lose 50% majority. I am not sure what I'm scared of most, whether it's them losing or whether the coalition government that will follow. You know, coalition governments by their very nature are unstable and you can already see it at the municipal level unstable and usually cannot agree on an economic policy that they can then implement across the country. So I wouldn't, you know, losing 50% majority for me is almost neither here nor there, you know, unless there was a kind of collective agreement that ANC comes into a coalition government with someone like DA, which is never going to happen. Um, You know, this coalition government, I wouldn't kind of hold up too much hope that, you know, coalition government, again, look at Italy if you want to learn about coalition governments, that a coalition government is going to achieve anything more 
than the current ANC is achieving. Um, you know, in, in terms of the structures, I think there is a fundamental, um, you know, kind of weakness in the way this country is run. Uh, so imagine if we could vote for the president independently of voting for the country. If we could vote for a constitutional, or, you know, kind of municipal representation in the parliament, a constituency representation in parliament, you know, that would fundamentally change how this country is run. It is not ANC, you know, losing 50% majority. And in terms of Cyril, you know, I think he is walking this kind of, you know, um, tightrope of, remember, he can always be recalled at any stage as the president of ANC. Right. And, you know, as a consequence, followers as, as president, president of the country. Now, I'm not talking about lesser evils, but, you know, I'm talking about the fact that what comes next? And, you know, the biggest weakness of ANC, forget the corruption. I mean, we all know it's there. But it's the fact that I can't see a younger generation of politicians that have been groomed to talk, take over from the older generation. Why is it that we can't look at the president who is 45 years old with all the energy that comes with being that age? And, you know, my, my sadness is that and again, it's a little bit of my generation because I grew up with super smart and went to universities with super smart people who could have gone into politics. But instead of that, they were lured into the private sector, offered enormous salaries and undoubtedly, rather than contributing their skills in the public sector, just went into the private sector to make money. And those people could change the path of ANC and path of South Africa. But unfortunately, they've opted for a different career path. And what I'm hoping is that now that, you know, most businesses are a lot more uh, representative. So these humongous opportunities for non-white people to enter the private sector are hopefully shrinking while the economy is shrinking. So by definition, that those people will find uh, you know, the public sector attractive and infiltrate the ANC with very different ideas and with the knowledge that we need feasible economic policies. Um, so, so that's my kind of view on, you know, I, I don't have a specific view on Cyril. Um, you know, whether he is weak or whether he's strong, again, tightrope of ANC and the factions within the ANC, which are almost impossible to maneuver. Um, I also don't have a view on, you know, Palapala. My view is to oper always operate with facts that are on the table. Whereas if I look at media, there is so much speculation. You know, I opened, I think it was Business Live or News 24, and I couldn't find an article that was in Palapala, Palapala, Palapala. You read those articles, and most of them are just speculation. Whereas I've always dealt with solid facts. So, you know, there are some things that we know about what has happened, your buffaloes, your some money in a couch, mm -hmm. uh, which incidentally isn't as funny as it appears, because you're in South Africa. If someone breaks into your house, they don't steal the contents of safe. They steal the safe. Correct. So, you know, when I look at myself, yes, I've got some stuff in the safe, but trust me, my most precious possessions 
are scattered around the house. I'm not going to tell you where around the house. Yeah, you have to. You have to be smart about this. Yeah. <laughs> you know. So, right. so there are some facts we know, but there's just so much speculation out there. And, you know, Sarah will, as any one of us, would, in the, you know, in, in the face of these kind of allegations, would hire the best lawyers that you can and operate under legal advice. And legal advice will be say as little as possible. Right. Don't tie yourselves into stories which subsequently will come and bite you because people, when they tell stories, they naturally embellish. They feel this need to, you know, instead of saying one sentence, the natural, you know, kind of tendency for people is to talk and talk and talk. And this is where you find yourself in hot water. So good legal advice for him would be stop talking. Right. And um, I think that is what he's done. And now we just need to go through the process and see what facts actually emerge on the table. Canton, you, you, you pulled a face there where you, um, you said, for example, that you, sorry, I just want to see if I can bring you back on here. Um, you pulled a face when, when Magda said that uh, we should have more talent going into the public sector. Um, I don't know whether you, you, you thought that was a good thing or a bad thing, whether you thought she was right or wrong. Do you have anything to say about that? Well, I think, uh, Marta, you actually raised a, a, a lot of uh, points out there again. And um, uh, and I think a, a lot of them we actually need to be, uh, uh, you know, just kind of picking them apart and saying, well, there's always a what-if scenario that we need to apply into into all of those. You're absolutely right in terms of, people going into the private sector instead of the public sector because they've never actually seen going into politics as as a career path. And, you know, my aborted uh, attempt into the political sphere a couple of years ago was to try and pull 10 people that were basically in the private sector with ideas in terms of how to fix the country into parliament to try and just inject that kind of baseload of ideas of how we can fix things in a relatively short term. And I still think that there's merit in actually doing that type of thing. And it has to come from outside of the existing political structures. So I don't know where that's going to come from um, between now and 2024, because with all of the changes that are happening around how our elections are going to be conducted, based on the fact that the Supreme Court has said you must allow individuals to run. I think that's absolutely crazy because you can't have a ballot paper that has literally thousands of people that are listed on it. And so we don't know where that's going in 2024. But I want to pull back to something that you said, which I agree with, and we've spoken about it on the show. That is that every government in the world is corrupt. And the point that uh, uh, that we need to get to is to recognize that there are percentages of corruption that, I would think are acceptable for want of, uh, want of a better word. So if I uh, take, for example, the, the process of ETOLs, the collection, what we were ending up paying to the company that built the toll gantries was effectively 18% of the revenue that was collected. And to my mind, that is an acceptable level of corruption. What we've had here is a scenario where we've ended up with 90% corruption and 10% delivery. And really what we need to be looking at is how we swing back from that 90% and get it back down to uh, to 10%. So if I throw back, if I use Paul Machatile as a very specific example, 
when he and Sam Shiloa were running this province, when they were running Gauteng, they were in that 10% category, but there was actually delivery that was happening on the ground at a number of levels. So that was the period when we had Gautrain coming along. That was the period when we had all of the expansion of the freeways taking place. We also had this massive rollout in terms of solar geysers that were distributed to the poorest of the poor. If you look at Mm -hmm. the East Bank of Alexandria, all of the solar geysers that were put in place that you can see from the freeway as you drive past were put in place by um, the Shaloa slash Masritela administration uh, at the time. So how do we claw back to that scenario where it's it's 10% theft and and not um, 90% theft like we have now? And so to go to the question of, yes, the point you raised around if the ANC drops below 50%, what if they go into a coalition with the EFF? And <clears throat> that ends up potentially being more disastrous than we are right now. But on the other hand, if you consider historically that Malema in particular hates Cyril Ramaphosa with a passion because Cyril was responsible for expelling him from the ANC. And I don't think that hatred is going to go away. So that's actually something that works in favor of the country. So what that means is that when you have an ANC that is below 50%, in order for anything to happen, in order for them to pass any a budget at the, at the most uh, simple level, mm-hmm. they need to have the cooperation of either the EFF or the DA. And that's why I think it's actually important that the DA now starts considering the possibility that they need to work with the ANC. It is absolutely crucial because the alternative is that we drive the DA, uh, we drive the EFF into being um, uh, the kingmakers in, in the scenario. And that's going to be absolutely disastrous for the country. So I, I think that the 50% scenario, yeah, um, it comes with these dangers. But I think that the benefits are going to be far better than the situation we have right now. Right now, decisions get taken in Lutuli House, behind the scenes. Yeah. When we have less than 50%, real discussions have to take place in Parliament. There needs to be a real debate around how budgets get structured and how funds get allocated. And then votes end up being very much a, a matter of public decision-making in Parliament. So I'm actually bullish on the idea of the ANC dropping below 50%. Pumi, you're chuckling at that idea. No, I'm not chuckling at that idea, Mm. but I actually do think that as crazy as the next two years are going to be for South Africans, now is actually the time. Magda, you talk about um, people being more in the private sector than in the public sector. Now is actually the time for us as individual South Africans to roll up our fucking sleeves. Now is the time <laughs> to get to get out there and and participate. Now is the time to take your skill and and join the DA and join Action SA and join Songhezo and and be there with your skill, with your knowledge, with your ideas. Now is the time that all of those things can actually make a difference. I mean, I just watching over the past couple of days what's happened in Georgia. I mean, for me, one of the most interesting things about what we saw in Georgia is that 
when the people of Georgia decided that they they want to see a change, right? So with their six million doors campaign, like they're knocking on doors and campaigning and getting people out to vote in the way that they wanted people to vote, it made a difference. South Africans need to do the same thing. If you want to see a change, you're going to have to be part of the people that are out there knocking on doors, getting people signed up, getting young people registered to vote, to getting and joining those structures and bringing your skills and your knowledge and your voice and being heard. So again, you know, if I might jump in, I think again, you know, look, I don't, I don't have all the answers. So let's, let's just be clear, you know, I'm, I'm not some font of wisdom that, you know, has descended on South Africa. Um, you know, the, the one thing about corruption, uh, you know, I've always described corruption as either functional corruption or dysfunctional corruption. You know, the, the functional corruption is corruption exists at the top, but the government ensures that infrastructure works. You know, the kind of uh, dysfunctional corruption is what we have in South Africa. There's just sheer focus on stealing and nothing on looking you know, after the people. And then I've been a humongous advocate. And, you know, if you look at some of the speeches I've made or articles I've written, I have been a humongous advocate of individual community involvement in this entire process. You know, if it's not us, if we are going to be the sheep, not dissimilar to the lockdown sheep, then nothing is going to change. So people do have to. And again, by the way, DA, and I've been very... um clear about the fact that I stay out of politics. You know, I don't believe that DA has all the answers uh, versus ANC. I don't think DA is good and ANC is bad. And hence, you know, the two coming together will create kind of a greater good. I fully believe that it is up to individuals to one, educate others. Because, you know, you're surrounded by people who just don't know. They don't know anything else but the ANC. Mm. So it's up to all of us, at least those of us who have the knowledge for a variety of reasons, you know, the lack of or the lack of being born into more prosperous families um, to educate those around us. And then it takes the individuals to stand up and implement and demand change. And it takes Business South Africa to do the same. Because, you know, again, go back to Zuma years rather than the current years. And, you know, when I stood up, I fully expected not to be alone on a stage criticizing government. I fully expected to see business leaders staying alongside, standing alongside me on the podium and criticizing government. And, you know, there were numerous interventions that could have been put in place. So I was absolutely astounded that <laughs> they when profit. we looked right, yeah, they profit. That's what I was talking about. They profit by the way. from no. the dysfunction. They profit from the dysfunction. If you're in healthcare, if the healthcare system has collapsed, great for you. If policing has collapsed and you're in security, great for you. Um, I can't tell you the, the kind of, I mean, naive, naive shock that I experienced when, remember, there was this BLSA yeah. and Business Leadership South Africa. Right. And they asked me to join. I mean, you had to some, pay some astronomical sum of money to join. I attended one meeting. I looked left. I looked right. And I said, people, I have absolutely no interest in being part of you. But one of these business leaders took me to breakfast. And this is what I was told. Magda, business will swing with the wind. If an acceptable way of doing business making profits is supporting corruption, 
then we will. If an acceptable way of not, you know, doing business is in a clean way, not super, we will swing with the wind. So your kind of, you know, standing up and voicing your opinions, really it's tilting at windmills because um, business is not going to be there <laughs> to, to support the change. And they haven't been, you know, look at a history and Zuma and where was business South Africa? No, quiet. Absolutely no way. So up to individuals, up, and it's actually up to individuals to force business to stand up. Is there any, and, and really this is kind of a, a last question for all three of you to have a go at, but is there any hope for those people who are unemployed in South Africa at the moment who are looking at all of this? There's clearly no economic growth going on, and if there is, it's very, very minimal. Are those people just going to be left to their own devices for another five, ten years? Are they going to be dependent on hope and charity alone? Or is there some possibility that we can create jobs, that we can create growth, that we can start stimulating this economy uh, without this horrible dependence on the government and on politicians to do so? Any way at all? I mean, from my perspective, absolutely. Look, there are some things in, you know, that we will not resolve in our lifetimes. We will not resolve inequality. We will not resolve, you know, poverty. Sure. However, there are some very easy interventions, and I, I just despair at the fact that, you know, this government cannot even implement the very basics. You know, there is, just as an example, uh, vocational training for people who currently don't have skills. So, you know, it's everything from turning people into, you know, plumbers. And I know this isn't a new idea. But, you know, things like vocational training to, to turn and upskill some of the people who are unemployed. Tax breaks for small and medium-sized enterprises to stimulate entrepreneurship and individuals, rather than emigrating, setting up businesses in South Africa. I mean, you know, I'm a big proponent of zero taxation for small enterprises yep. because if those enterprises at a corporate level can employ people guess what these people will pay income tax and VAT mm -hmm. there is enough taxes you are extracting from people while stimulating businesses to set up infrastructure and employ people and again not employ highly skilled people employ the unskilled people provide the training in exchange zero corporate tax rate um, and, and rely on the fact that, that you are addressing unemployment. I cannot tell you how easy, yes, it's, it's a long-term project, how easy it would be to, with current technology, to ad address uh, things like education. Again, you don't have to build brick-and-mortar schools. You can use, I mean, you know, I'm making this, this stuff up a little bit, but you can use shipping containers. You can provide free data to students. You can provide free plastic orange laptops that no one wants to steal. You can provide teaching via, from the best, best um, teachers in this country, via screens. Yeah. You don't need them physically in the classrooms. And then make, again, community. Uh, responsible for security of those schools. Show me a community in South Africa, one, that will not want good education for their children. One community, one family. So there are many, many more interventions that I could and would put in place 
But obviously, I'm in no position to do so other than talking about it and writing yeah. some articles. Yeah. Uh, Pumi, Canton, you, you, you agree with, with what Magda says there or not? Unemployed people. No one talks for them. No one, think, no one represents <clears throat> them. The unions don't care about them, even if they profess yeah, to. Look, look, by and large, no, Magda's raised points that, you know, again, we've discussed on the show before. And ultimately, all of these come down to government actually having the will to act and implement these very basic things. And that is always going to be the stopgap because there are these simple legislative things that could be done. So, you know, Magda was talking about um, a zero uh, percent tax for small businesses, as, as an example. A, a while ago, we spoke about the concept of putting in place a negative income tax, which would allow us to subsidize industries to so that we can become more competitive. And, you know, the textile industry is a very good example. If we had a scenario of negative in income tax where we were then topping up the salaries that we're getting paid to textile workers, it would allow us to then become competitive as a textile industry with China because right now we mm -hmm. can't based on our minimum wage laws. It just doesn't end up working for us. Again, that's a very simple thing that government can put in place that will immediately start creating uh, employment. I mean, remember in Durban alone, there used to be in 1998, 60,000 people employed in the textile uh, uh, business just on those couple of streets in Durban. And now I think it's down to about 400 people that now have jobs in the textile industry in Durban. And that's as a direct result of competition from, from China. Now I'm all in favor, of course, of, of having competition in terms of trading, but we are not doing things that you know, Europe, for example, does to ensure that they remain competitive with China. That doesn't involve putting up trade barriers. But this requires a government that actually has an understanding of how these things get done in other parts of the world to be able to pull those solutions and actually put them in place out here and say, you know, guys, how can we make it work? The shipping containers that, that Magda speaks about, you know, we, we spoke about that from the point of view of fixing school toilets. Again, yeah. it's something that's that's so absolutely basic. Uh, but uh, I, I think in the immediate term, a lot of the solutions that we are going to have are going to have to start with energy. And the best way that we can do that right now, we have gas pipelines that are coming in from uh, from Mozambique. We need to turn those into gas generators because you know putting out a 500 megawatt gas generator, for example, is a relatively low investment that can be done at a city level, you know, and uh, I spoke about this with the mayor, Gareth, you might remember yep. when she was on the show and she said, yes, you know, we've, we're now putting out tenders for people to actually do this type of stuff. From my perspective, it's very simple. If people are going to be supplying electricity to you, to the city at a lower price than ESCOM is currently charging the city, then that's a win. Just go ahead and do it. Yeah. Well, there we go. It's That's, not. It's not difficult. So, so you, yeah. you're saying there are straightforward decisions that can be made. Pumi, you, you haven't had a, a yes. go at this one yet, and then I just want to close off with some news from the presidency. But you go ahead. <laughs> it's gonna get worse before it gets better. Partly because nobody's nobody's even looking. They're too busy with factional fights. Uh, they're too busy uh, stealing. Mm. And on the other side, where the opposition are. They're too busy worrying about the power factional fights, you know, so nobody cares.
And until we have a government that cares about the people, a government that cares about our, about our infrastructure, about the people, about our economy, then decisions will be made. But at the moment, nobody cares. So it's going to get worse before it gets better. All right. Well, I just got I'm to... sorry. It's the end of the year, and I don't. I don't have. I have no more facts left to give. These guys have like it's been a it's been a long year of of well, nonsense. I need the sign. It's that, been that a we, long I year love, of nonsense. I love your boundless optimism, Pumi. Yeah. Well, here's here's the sign that Pumi's talking about. This is a sign we should all just put up in our houses and our businesses everywhere. Stop nonsense. I took this picture at some village in the northwest, and I still don't know what the office does, but we need one of these in every city and every town and every municipality. Stop nonsense. All right, so the, the latest news from the presidency is that uh, they've just said the 27th of December has been declared a public holiday because, of course, um, the Public Holidays Act says that whenever a public holiday falls on a Sunday, the following Monday shall be a public holiday. In this instance, the Monday following the 25th is another public holiday. So they're going to give us the 27th as well, just because we don't work in this country. Was that a tweet? Uh, no, t- I swear to God, this is a press Was release. That a tweet? No, it's a press release from the presidency. This is what he has the time to do this morning is give us an extra day off in December because, of course, we don't work hard enough. So there we go, everybody. Nice good news from uh, President Cyril and his, uh, his office, busy at work giving us extra days off. Terrific. And thank you, Magda. It's been great seeing you again. Um, I know that you, you never want to hold back your opinions, and you've come up with some great ideas this morning. From your lips to God's ears, may we, may we see some changes that will make us all feel a bit better about 2023. And uh, Pumi and Canton, as ever, we'll see you guys in the next Burning Platform. Thanks, everybody. Happy Thursday. We'll see you tomorrow at 6 a.m. Bye-bye.